Chapter 6 The Letters For the next few decades after the ascension of Christ, the apostles and missionaries spread and grew the church throughout the inhabited world. Questions of doctrine, practical living issues, local needs, and sometimes disputes arose. Key leaders, mainly apostles, would sometimes address such issues in the form of letters. Most of the lessons and answers apply to the church in all places and all times, still today. 21 of the 27 books of the New Testament are letters. These are often called the epistles, an older, more formal word that just means letters. These letters collectively take up about as much space as the Gospels and Acts do together. So the letters are each generally much shorter. They range from anywhere from about 18 pages in a printed book like this one, at the longest all the way down to barely a half page. Most are in the middle of this range. Thirteen of these letters are traditionally attributed to the Apostle Paul. His letters generally bear the names of the city or region in which the recipient churches were located, Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians, etc., In a few cases, such as Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, Paul addressed his letters to individuals. The other eight letters are called the general epistles. Two are traditionally attributed to Peter, three to John, and one each to James and Jude. One unattributed letter is traditionally titled to the Hebrews because of its content. Despite its unknown authorship, though many people choose to believe Paul wrote it too, its content is among the most important for understanding many aspects of the New Testament. These letters are called general due to their audience. With one minor exemption, 3 John, they are not addressed to a specific church or individual. They were written either to all Hebrew converts or to the church at large. Liberal scholars and some moderates believe that the letters, as well as the rest of the New Testament books, were compiled, edited, and expanded over time by several people. They think the final forms, in some cases, may not have arrived until well into the second century. Most conservatives believe the letters were composed or dictated largely as is by the authors to whom they are attributed. The earliest is usually accepted to be James. It appeared probably in the mid to late 40s, about 15 years or so after Christ's ascension. About seven of Paul's letters appeared in the 50s, the rest in the 60s. The 60s also welcomed the epistles of Peter and Jude, with Hebrews appearing probably in the latter half of the same decade. Even conservative scholars differ on the dating of John's letters. Many feel he wrote well into the 90s. Some of us, however, think that the whole New Testament was completed before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, and John's letters bear evidence of that outlook as well. The letters differ markedly in a variety of things they address. They also, however, adhere very consistently to a single body of central beliefs. Some parts of the letters contain detailed theological study. Other parts provide very practical guidance for morality, personal ethics, family relationships, and much more. Other parts contain rebuke or exhortation, encouragement or comfort. In places, the letters contain wisdom as deep and as penetrating as the Old Testament wisdom literature. 
In other parts, they have praises that resound like the greatest of the Psalms. Other parts recall prophecies with as much promise, challenge, or terror for enemies as Isaiah or Jeremiah. Other parts leverage relevant laws for New Testament times. Others call Christians to live like the freest of free people in such a way as to never require the need for secular courts. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1-8 through 8. Although deferring in humility to secular rulers, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, unless they demand that we disobey the central commands of God, Acts chapter 4, verses 19 through 20, and chapter 5, verse 29. Most of the content, however, includes teaching on basic, practical, and doctrinal matters. Who is Jesus? What did he do for us? How are we saved? What does salvation mean? What does it mean to live as a Christian? How should Christians think and act, do business, build relationships, etc.? Much of the first century included persecution for Christians from multiple angles. Some of the content included practical encouragement and advice for how to live in times of persecution. Examples of Doctrine and Practice Paul's letter to the Romans is his longest and is considered by some to be the single greatest concise treatise on Christian theology ever written. It is certainly the most comprehensive letter for that purpose in the New Testament. While not nearly doing justice to its many topics, we can excerpt from Romans an excellent summary of the work of Christ and our relationship to him. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Romans chapter 3 verses 19 through 25. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, and verses 6 through 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans chapter 8 verses 1 and 2 verses 14 through 17 and Romans chapter 10 verse 9 and verse 13. A significant portion of the letters involves lessons on personal living, Christian mentality, attitude, relationships, and morals. There are countless examples of such expressions through the letters. They are perhaps best expressed in Paul's teachings on the example of Christ in self-sacrifice, the nature of love, and the marriage relationship. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 12. This mentality ought to be the foundation of all Christian life and action. Christ had all brilliance, money, power, status, and glory at his fingertips. But he set that all aside in order to identify with us, even in our lowest ways. He gave up everything, even in this humble life, choosing to suffer and die in the most ignoble of deaths, all for the sake of others. This letter instructs us to have this mind as well. This approach is a great example of what the Bible means when it speaks of love. Love is not merely a feeling, but it is also a standard of behavior towards others. The classic passage from Paul, often read at weddings, describes it like this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. This plan for life appears in a very high ideal when Paul discusses it in the context of a marriage relationship. It comes, as we shall see, with a very interesting twist. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are all members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Quoting from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33. There is certainly an ideal here for practical life. The twist, however, is that it is also at the same time a higher theological reality. Christ, the husband, giving himself for the church, his bride. Paul even quotes from the story of creation of Adam and Eve in the garden, saying this mystery was speaking all along about the greater reality of Christ and the church, yet also applies to us and our relationships. It is the loving, willing sacrifice of Christ for us, as we read also from Philippians 2 above, that becomes the motivation and inspiration for love and respect in the heart of his spouse. The motive for us behind all such ideal living is the love and grace we have already received first from Christ. It involves the fact that he has already sacrificed and exalted us first. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Colossians chapter 1 verse 22 and chapter 3 verse 1. John gives perhaps the most direct explanation of this dynamic. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, and verses 16 through 19. Remember that love is not just an emotion, but is a standard of behavior, including positive acts of sacrifice and giving, as well as boundaries of self-discipline. In Romans, Paul gives an excellent summary of how this all plays out in Christian life and a broader Christian community. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Which is your spiritual worship? For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor, 
contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Bless those who persecute you. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath to the wrongdoer. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 through chapter 13 verse 10. This passage provides a summary outlook for the whole of Christian society. It starts with personal sacrifice to God. It flows into service to others based on your God-given talents and gifts. It must be permeated with love for one another, preference for others. It shows hospitality and charity. It associates with the lowly, poor, down and out, the homeless, and prisoners. It shows love and blessing even to those outside the church, even to those who persecute us. By this ethic, we do not avenge ourselves, but respect civil government and due process. We even consider established authorities as God's servants. This means two things. First, we should respect the authorities as those selected by God for us. Second, however, we should also remind the authorities that as God's servants, God is their master and they must uphold God's standards of right, wrong, and justice. Much of our own Bill of Rights in the United States is based upon these basic principles. In the end, all of these social ideals are simply applications of the summary of God's law. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is Christian love in action. In relationship with others. As we said in the introduction to this book, the Bible is a book about our relationship with God and through that, our relationships with other human beings. A note about the end times. We cannot leave the letters without mentioning a subject that appears frequently in them in a variety of ways. It is a subject which is dominated with a large swath of the Christian imagination, sermons, and commentary throughout history, and still does. It is the subject of the end times, or last days. There are some passages that seem clearly to teach that there is coming a last days cataclysm, social decline, or apocalypse. One of these passages discusses a catching away of believers in what is today called the rapture. 
Millions of Christians have been led to believe that such events lie in our imminent future and could take place at any moment. This has led to millions of Christians to esteem life in this world as less important or less meaningful, except as a chance to escape and get to heaven. Good works, business, social causes, and justice suffer tremendously due to such a view. Too often, however, readers are misled or do not notice that the end times or last days language throughout the New Testament, including the letters and the Gospels and Acts, is speaking of their own time in the first century and not ours. The last days was not speaking of some series of events 2,000 years in their future, which would have been completely meaningless to them but to the last day of the Old Covenant era, which was then passing away as they lived. Many passages bear out this reality, but perhaps the opening to Hebrews makes it clearest. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. When you realize that this was being written in the first century, then the phrase, these last days, means that the last days must have been a first century reality. In chapter 8, the same author speaks of the passing away of the old era. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. In the next chapter, we will explore the reality in the revelation a little more closely, as well as the vision for society that Christians should maintain as we live now. Conclusion Followers of the Bible, therefore, do not need to be concerned with future apocalypses or cataclysm, or with being raptured out of the end times. Those events already took place when the last days of the Old Covenant ended and Christians were caught away to safety from the judgment that fell upon Jerusalem at that time. Instead, Christians today should be living in love and self-giving, building loving relationships and creating the type of society that Paul described in Romans chapter 12 and 13, above, among other places. Toward this end, interested readers have an enormous treasure of resources available to them in the letters of the New Testament. They address love, sacrifice, Christian psychology, relationships, marriage, family, local community, governments, business, justice, and much, much more. We have only scratched the surface in this chapter. The interested reader is encouraged to take their time and read through the rest for themselves.